Let me pray. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, thank you that we can meet around your word today. Please give us wisdom and insight as we consider your message to us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder whether you've ever had cause to think, what's going on? I recently watched a Netflix documentary entitled The Social Dilemma, and it, it examined the rise and the rise of social media. You know, platforms like Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, etc. Now, clearly, a lot of good has resulted from social media. For example, our church makes really good use of Facebook. But social media has also got its problems as well. And so this particular documentary cited things like how uh, social media platforms gather information about users, people like you and me, which it can then pass on and sell on to people who are interested in that information. Social media is designed to be addictive. It has the capacity to be used to manipulate politics. It can sometimes have negative effects on people's mental health. And it's also often used to spread conspiracy theories, fake news, etc., etc. Now, some of this is deliberate. I mean, they deliberately try to make it addictive. But some of these other side effects are not planned. They just sort of happened. How did it happen? And then sometimes we can look around at the world, at, you know, COVID-19, for example, or we see the rise of surprising people into positions of power, like, say, Donald Trump, or even really worrying and perhaps almost evil people in positions of power like Kim Jong-un uh, or Vladimir Putin, etc. And we may ask the question, what's going on? Is anyone in control of all this? Or closer to home, we can look at our own personal lives. You know, why did I get that injury? Why did my mother or, or wife or, or son get sick? Why didn't I get that job or that promotion? Or, or why did I lose my job? What's going on? Is anyone in control, we may ask. And we can often ask this in relation to, I guess, Christianity and the Christian faith as well. There was a 2019 report ordered by the British Foreign Secretary, a guy by the name of Jeremy Hunt. And this report found that Christians were the most persecuted religion in the world. In the latest issue of the Voice of the Martyrs newsletter, which I receive, it talks about uh, the persecution of Christians in the country of Pakistan. Uh, numbers of Pakistani Christians live in virtual slavery, working in brick kilns. Uh, Pakistani Christian children are often forced to work and they don't get any education. If they do get education, they can be harassed and persecuted at school. And even if they finish school and enter the job market, they can often find themselves in the most menial of jobs. You know, sewer cleaners, street sweepers, garbage collectors. And then locally, spiritually, we can look around at our, our family and friends who we've been praying for for years, who just seem so disinterested. Why doesn't God answer our prayers about our unsafe family and friends or about health issues or job issues or relationship issues? Or simply, why is my Christian life seem to be going so flat? What's going on? Is anyone in control? And we may even ask the question, 
is it worth it? Now these sorts of questions are questions that can be very real to people at various times in their lives and maybe they're relevant to you now. And so it can be very helpful to recall that the book of Revelation, which we're looking at at the moment, was inspired by a God who understood suffering, was written by a man, John, who understood and experienced suffering, and it was written originally to churches in Asia Minor who experienced often suffering. So if you've ever asked, what's going on? Is anyone in control? Is it all worth it? Today's passage is a good one for you. Now today we're, con we're concluding our term three which series, which has gone into the holidays in the book of Revelation. And we're stopping today at Revelation chapter five. Now, hopefully you've downloaded an outline of this talk or this sermon from the website, and you'll see that it sets out three main points as we look at Revelation chapter 5. Firstly, we're going to look at the fact that Jesus is needed, verses 1 to 5. And then Jesus takes centre stage, verses 6 to 10. And then finally, Jesus is worthy of all praise, verses 11 to 14. So let's start with verses 1 to 5, and our first point, Jesus is needed. Now in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we looked at Jesus' message to seven different churches in Asia Minor, churches that were doing it tough. And there's a message for each of those churches, which we've been going through in recent weeks. But then last week in chapter 4, we sort of went from, I guess, an earthly focus, we were elevated we had a major change, and we went from the place of persecution on earth to the place of power. Chapter 4 and 5 today takes us to the throne room of heaven. And in chapter 4, it described the absolutely awe-inspiring scene of the Father sitting on his throne in the throne room of heaven, a throne from which comes thunder and lightning. A throne before which there are seven lamps and a sea of glass. A throne around which is a rainbow, 24 elders on 24 thrones and four remarkable creatures. And the creatures are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the elders are saying, you are worthy, our Lord and God. Then in today's passage, we're still in the throne room, but the attention shifts a little. Look at verse 1 with me. Uh, hopefully you've got your Bibles with you. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. You see, in this incredible description of unsurpassed glory, our attention is now brought to bear on a scroll. Perhaps something a little like this, a scroll. And the scroll seems to refer to, and it seems to describe, God's plan of judgment and redemption for humanity and the whole world. God's plan of judgment and redemption for humanity and the whole world. If you ever wonder what's going on in the present, or What's going to happen in the future? Both questions are addressed on the scroll. 
And they're both also questions which will have a great bearing on whether we're motivated to stick in there as Christians when the going gets tough. So you and I, like John, and I'm sure like the original readers, want to know what is on that scroll exactly? What is its contents? What's in there? Let's go to verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But then, and here's the point of frustration, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Now, I can sort of understand this sort of frustration. <laughs> About a month ago, I was working at home one night at my computer there, and suddenly the screen, without my doing anything, just went blue in front of me. And I thought, uh-oh, this doesn't look good. So I pressed a few buttons, nothing much happened. Turned it off and on, nothing much happened. And thought, oh no. So I went and got my wife, who is more of a technological guru than I am, which is probably not saying much. She came and had a look, did a few things. She couldn't figure out how to get the computer to work again. So the next day I took my laptop to work and showed it to Chris Shearman, our technological whiz kid on staff. He couldn't figure out how to get the computer to work. And we also learned that I thought my, my material on the computer had been automatically backed up. But in fact, it hadn't been. So most of my work from the last 10 years was on that computer. We couldn't access it. So uh, Chris, on my behalf, took it to a local computer company. They couldn't get the computer to work or to get my work off it. So I had my computer there, my work from the last 10 years inside it, but we couldn't get it out. We couldn't access it. You know, was there anyone? who could open my scroll, so to speak. Well, not initially. But fortunately, we soon learned there was a place in the CBD of City, Sydney who could get the information from my computer, open the scroll, so to speak. And even more importantly, uh, thankfully for John and for his original audience and for all Christians, there was someone who could open the far more important scroll, the scroll referred to in Revelation chapter 5. Look at verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. The line of the tribe of Judah, the, the root of David, refers to the Messiah, to Jesus. And it's a very powerful image. Powerful uh, animals are often metaphorically associated with things which like to be seen as powerful. So, for example, uh, the bear is often associated with the country of Russia. The lion with Britain. The eagle with the United States. And here Jesus is described as a lion. It's an image of power. And then in the next verse, uh, this lion of the tribe of Judah strides onto the stage in all his majesty and power. Or does he? 
Let's go to the second point, verses 6 to 10. Jesus takes centre stage. Verse 6. Then I saw a lamb. What? A lamb? Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain. Now, this image of Jesus as a, as a lamb looking as if it's been slain is more pathetic than powerful. It's more minor than majestic. It's more Rogan Josh than ruler. I mean, how anticlimactic. Now, as most of you, I'm sure, know by now, I'm a cricket fan. And when I was growing up, I heard about the great exploits of Don Bradman, the famous Australian cricketer. Both my parents had seen him play. They'd told me stories. I'd read about him. I had this picture of him as this colossus who stood astride the history of world cricket. Yeah, a, a great player, a great cricketer, as we obviously know. And then in the mid-1970s, my family went to a test match at the Sydney Cricket Ground and it was announced that Donald Bradman was going to appear in the lunch break. And I was, of course, very excited about this. Who strode onto the oval at the lunch break in the mid-1970s? It was Bradman. What did he look like? Well, he was a smallish, perhaps five, just over five and a half feet, balding man in his 70s. Now, he didn't look particularly impressive. Now, my parents had prepared me for this. They said, Stephen, you realise he's going to be about 70. He wasn't a big man, etc. I was prepared, and, and I, I still was thrilled to see Bradman. But I'd been prepared. I don't think John had been prepared to see Jesus, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, come onto the scene, take centre stage as a lamb, looking like it had been slain. This lamb, verse 6, is standing at the centre of the throne and he's encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. But it was a lamb with a difference. You see, the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, the horns are presumably illustrative of power, the eyes, the spirits, are perhaps are indicative of knowledge. And there are seven of them, which is the number of perfection in Revelation. So the apparently slain lamb was something more of a, a super lamb or a super slain lamb, you could say. Now, it's strange imagery, but it's making a point regarding Jesus, which we're soon going to unpack. So then, Jesus, this lion slash lamb, verse 7, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Then those who are in the know, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, Revelation 8 and 9 tell us, fell down before the lamb and they sang a new song. What were they going to sing and what was uh, the basis of their praise? We read in verse 9. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Now, there is an awful lot in verse 9, isn't there? Let's just unpack bits of it. Firstly, Jesus is worthy to open the scroll because he purchased 
people for God through his death on the cross. It's his death on the cross, his saving death, which makes him worthy to reveal and then to execute God's plans of salvation and judgment for the creation. Jesus is worthy to wind up history as we know it because of his death on the cross. Now at this church here we speak a lot about Jesus' death on the cross and the cross and rightly so. But I wonder if you've been here for a while and you've heard the cross mentioned on innumerable occasions, whether you've ever started to sort of think, oh, here we go again. They're mentioning the cross, the cross of Jesus. Can we not think about something else? Can we not go into something a bit more interesting? Have you ever been tempted to think that? Now, most of us, I'm sure, here realise that the cross is crucially important. But I think it's fair to say that the cross of Jesus is more important than any of us fully appreciate it. Let me make a few comments. We, we, know, we know, I trust, that it's the cross of Christ which offers us salvation. It's the cross which provides the means by which God's righteous wrath against our wrongdoing is placed, is diverted from us, placed on Jesus. He takes God's wrath in our place so that we can be forgiven, have our relationship with God restored, our, our guilt uh, removed, our sins forgiven. We can have a relationship with God. We look forward to eternal life, etc., etc. Jesus is a great teacher, a great miracle worker, a great life example, but most significantly, he is the great saviour. And the cross was the means by which he purchased people for God. And so it's probably just good to pause for a moment and ask the question, have you been purchased by Jesus for God? Have you received the benefits of Jesus' death in your place by asking him to forgive you and saying that you want to follow him. Have you taken that step yet? If you have, praise the Lord. If you haven't, that's a step you may rue or want to take, or at least talk to someone about. So, Jesus' death, as we know on the cross, saves us. Jesus' death on the cross also highlights God's love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It shows us that God understands suffering. Uh, he's not able to, unable to empathise with us in our weaknesses. Jesus suffered horribly. The cross is also an ingenious solution to that most major of problems, which is how can God have a relationship with humanity whilst maintaining both his mercy and his justice? I mean, if you'd been given that predicament and thought, what are you going to do about it? Would you have ever come up with the cross of Christ. I mean, the cross of Christ is ingenious. God maintains his mercy and his justice in a way that allows our relationship to be restored. And then what we see here in this particular passage is that the cross of Christ is what makes Christ worthy to take the scroll, to open it, to reveal and execute God's plans of judgment and redemption for humanity and creation. And if you read on in the book of Revelation, you'll see exactly what that involves, how huge, how large scale those plans are. Plans which utterly dwarf the world wars, which utterly dwarf 
empires that may only last a couple of centuries. To say nothing of dwarfing COVID-19 or the very real problems which we may personally face today. The cross of Christ makes him worthy. Now just as a bit of an aside, it's perhaps worth noting that if we'd been around 2,000 years ago, we were in Jerusalem and we physically witnessed Jesus dying on the cross. I mean, it would have struck us as a little odd. There was the darkness at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. We may have heard about the, the t- curtain in the temple ripping. The manner of his death had some surprising aspects. There were some interesting events associated with it. But no one, I'm sure, would have had even the faintest inkling that this death which we were witnessing was in fact the turning point of human material and spiritual existence on a universe-wide scale. We would never have had the faintest idea that that was what was taking place. And I guess one thing this highlights is that the events and the things which God considers most important and significant may not be what observers in the world think are important or significant. Well, Jesus' death makes him worthy. Now, it's not just that his death purchased people for God, that's highlighted here, but also that he purchased people from every tribe, language, people and nation. You see, Jesus is concerned with all peoples. God is not a racist. God's kingdom is utterly international. As I know I've shared here in the past, I often describe uh, one of the pivotal moments in my life was when I was 20 years old, living in London, went to a large central London church and joined this uh, group called the All Souls International Fellowship Group. It was this big international group of Christians from right around the world who were associated with All Souls Church Langham Place in London. And in this group, which I think had about 60 or 70 people in it. There were Christians from every continent on earth except for Antarctica. And can I say, fellowshipping with Christians from different cultures I found enriching, stimulating, life-changing, and it really was a foretaste of God's kingdom in heaven. A couple of chapters later in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9, it describes a time in the future when a great multitude that no one could count from every tribe, nation, people and language will stand before the throne and before the Lamb. God purchases an international kingdom or Jesus purchases uh, people internationally for God. And it highlights that God and Jesus, the Son of God, cares for all people. He cares for Bangladeshis as he does for Australians. All lives are equally valuable to him. Remember uh, many years ago, uh, I read or heard uh, the following account of newsworthiness in Australian news stories. Now, I haven't got the exact details correct, but it went something like this. In terms of newsworthiness, which means things which are likely to feature in the news, one death in Australia is perhaps about the same as five deaths in the USA or Europe, and maybe that's the same as about a hundred or a thousand deaths in Africa. <laughs> that's what needs to happen to get something onto the Australian news. Sort of suggests that different lives are of different importance to us here in Australia. Now, can I say, fortunately, God is not like Australian views of newsworthiness. For God, all lives 
are valuable. All lives equally matter. And as far as God is concerned, your life matters. Your life matters as much as our Prime Minister's life, or my life, or whoever's life you may care to think of. Your life matters, as does the life of the beggar we walk past in the street, or the refugee we see on the news. And then uh, the passage continues, and we see what the future holds for believers. Uh, this directly addresses the, is it worth it, question. Look at verse 10 with me, if you will. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. This is referring to Christians, to God's people. Now, the original recipients of the book of Revelation, or the original hearers, because it would have been read to most people, of the book of Revelation, would perhaps have been a fairly insignificant-looking group of people, small in number, vulnerable, sometimes persecuted. And perhaps you feel the same way today. Our lives may not be that uh, significant in the world's eyes. But they and we uh, at times may wonder whether it's all worth it. But here Jesus reveals that our present reality and our future is one of great importance to God and is one of great and high dignity. You see, we, believers, are described as a kingdom, kingdom of God's people. We are priests who serve God and we will reign. It says we will reign on the earth, Christians, God's people. Now, I, I'm not exactly certain what this reigning on earth might exactly entail, but clearly we will be given positions of great honour and importance, things which we really don't deserve, but we are given because of the grace of God. And this is the Christian's future. In athletics, athletes often put in years of practice with a view to obtaining an Olympic gold medal. And we as Christians can persist through perhaps years of difficulty and hardship because we look forward to an inheritance which will never perish, spoil or fade, in which we are a kingdom, we are priests and we are rulers. We may seem significant and ordinary now, but that is not our future. Now the proclamation of all these truths leads to further praise of Jesus in verses 11 to 14 and brings us to our third brief point. Jesus is worthy of all praise. Now in the preceding verses, uh, the four living creatures and the 24 elders have just been praising Jesus. Now the number of heavenly beings praising Jesus increases drastically. See, in verse 11, it's the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 who are praising. And they're saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. So from four creatures and 24 elders to thousands upon thousands of angels, and it's actually ever-expanding praise because in verses 13 and 14, it's every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that's in them who are praising. See, the proclamation of these truths leads to ever-expanding and increasing praise. And, you know, that's what we so often do in church. We hear God's word proclaimed to us 
and we respond in, in praise as we sing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. We're doing one of the sorts of things which is described as taking place here in God's throne room in heaven. Let me conclude. Life can sometimes seem disappointing, baffling, smothering, battering even. We can look at the world around us, at these out-of-control, sometimes negative effects of social media. We can lament the state of political leadership around the world. We can feel oppressed by COVID-19. We can be weighed down by the persecution of Christians overseas and perhaps even locally. We experience repeated blows, spiritual and physical, on our lives and on the lives of loved ones. And we may often ask, what's happening? Is anyone in control? Is it worth it? Well, this passage, Revelation chapter 5, highlights the unsurpassed worthiness of Jesus. It highlights the comprehensive nature of God's plans for good, plans which include us. And in answer to those suffering-inspired questions that we sometimes ask, we can say wholeheartedly, yes, Jesus is in control, and yes, it is worth it. Well, let me pray. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for this incredible vision and picture we are given of uh, the present and the future, your throne room in heaven, and the great plans you have for humanity and for us. Lord, we do pray that we would take encouragement from this as we face uh, often lives which can be tiresome and difficult. Help us to stand firm and, uh, and to go forth uh, following you with these words of encouragement. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.